I wonder if we could turn in our Bibles to the prophecy of Nahum and to the chapter 3. The prophecy of Nahum, chapter 3. And we're going to read from verse 1 of the portion of Scripture. Nahum, chapter 3. And beginning our reading at verse 1, please. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there's a multitude of slain and a great number of carcasses, and there's none end of their carcasses of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpus corpses because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well favoured harlot, the mystery, mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness, and the kingdoms thy shame, and I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and make thee vile, and will set thee as a gazing stock. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee, and say, Nineveh is laid waste, who will bemoan her? When shall I seek comforters for her? Art thou better than populous No, that was situate among the rivers, that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea? Ethiopian Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put and Lubim uh, were thy helpers. Yet was she carried away. She went into captivity." Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. Thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid, thou also shalt seek strength because of the, of the enemy. All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees, with the first ripe fig, figs, if they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold, thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Draw thee waters for the siege. Fortify thy strongholds. Go into clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the cankerworm. Make thyself many as the cankerworm. Make thyself many as the locust. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The cankerworm spoileth and flieth away. Thy crowned are as the locust, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, 
and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the bruit of thee shall clap the hands over thee. For upon whom hath not the wickedness, thy wickedness, passed continually? Amen. We know the Lord will uh, again add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. Let's unite in a word of prayer. Our loving and our gracious God, we do thank thee for the opportunity of meeting with thee afresh this evening. And we pray that thou wouldst bless thy word to our hearts. We think, Lord, of this situation many centuries ago. And yet, Lord, we recognize that the, uh, the lessons that are learned here still come down to us in this day, a different, uh, uh, a different kind of uh, context, a different culture, a different way of going. But yet, Lord, we can see the signs that were in the situation here in Assyria and in Nineveh, and they are very evident in our own day and generation. So, Lord, we look to thee, we pray for thy blessing, and we'd ask thee that thou would shut us in with thyself tonight, for it's in Jesus' precious name that we'd ask these things. Amen. Amen. Now, we've been looking at the book of Nahum over a number of weeks and we um, pointed out how that the book of Nahum is really a sequel to the book of Jonah in many ways. Jonah had gone uh, 100 or 150 years beforehand and had preached to the people of Nineveh and had seen a mighty turnaround. The people had listened to the message. They had repented of their sins and they had turned to the God of heaven. Much to the consternation of Jonah, it must be said, but nevertheless, there had been a mighty turnaround in the people. But the wickedness has returned in the 150 or 100 years that have intervened. And we think of Nineveh as a place, or the Assyrians as a whole, the nation, as a people who were known for their violence. They used impalement and flaying and mutilations and amputations, all of those things were the trademark of the Assyrians. They um, gloried in their violence. And many, when you go in, uh, when the, the city of Nineveh was uncovered, many of the decorations that were on the walls were of this violence. They would show the awful torture that they put their uh, 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 captives under. They cut off limbs, they got gouged out eyes, they left their poor victims to uh, roam around if they left them alive at all. And they were guilty of mass executions. Impalement, as we say, was their preferred method, but they were also the inventors of crucifixion. So they were skilled in the arts of torture and of violence. But God says here to them now, the end is coming. You can't get away with that kind of sin forever. And where uh, they, they got away with it for a good while, God was long-suffering with them. But there comes a day when justice is going to be served. And if you look at verse 19, you will see that the justice is final, and it is one that is uh, unalterable. He says, there is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the bruit of thee shall clap the hands over thee, 
for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. And we said that in the year 612 BC, the Medes and the Persians, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Scythians and the Sumerians, they all entered in and the prophecy was uh, brought to fruition. The city was sacked and it was so destroyed that it wasn't uncovered again until some archaeologists began to uncover the city in about the year 1840. And all that was left was rubble in the midst of the desert there. Uh, the city of Nineveh was no more. Uh, but I made a remark a few weeks ago, and it wasn't in my notes. It wasn't something that I meant to say. But I made a remark of, in the message about the fall of empires and about how uh, when people fall into decadence and into sin, and when sin begins to reign in amongst a civilization or amongst a people, that it almost always signals the end of that people or that civilization. And I thought, or just made a remark about how our own land and the Western civilization, if we call it that, seems to be in that kind of a state. A number of years ago, in 1776, Edward Gibbon wrote a classic volume entitled The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And in that book, Gibbon traced the reasons for the decline. And he said it was a gradual, of, of Rome that was, and he said it was a gradual process. It just didn't happen overnight. He said there was a growing disparity between the rich and the poor. That was one thing. They said the rich were getting richer and the poor were getting poorer. He said that nobody wanted to do the dirty jobs. They didn't want to do the uh, small jobs or the nasty jobs. And he said they relied more and more on outsiders, on foreigners to come in and to do that kind of work. But he said one of the big reasons was growing sexual immorality. He said that the Roman Empire was permissive at the end, based on social status. Uh, there was homosexuality was common, pedophilia was accepted, and it began, became a society in which the family structure began to break down. He said the people became lazy and unproductive. He said that uh, when the city was sacked, uh, the, uh, the uh, barbarians came in and they found a people that were at ease with themselves. And Gibbon famously said, and I'm going to quote, he, he says, I quote, as long as mankind shall continue to bestow more liberal applause on their destroyers than on their benefactors, the thirst of military glory will ever be the vice of the most exalted characters. What did he mean by that? Well, he was saying they began to look to their enemies. They began to admire their enemies. They began to despise themselves and to admire their enemies. And this was the pattern that uh, Gibbon saw in the Roman Empire, and people have transposed that. They've seen 
those kinds of signs in other empires right at the end. And when I was thinking about that, the fact of this is the end of an empire, I thought, well, here in the book of Nahum, we have the end of an empire. Here we have the signs of what takes place when a people, where a civilization is about to fall. And so I began to think, well, can we trace the characteristics here in some degree of a society that is going to fall? And can we maybe see the same things or maybe not in our own society? And so I I thought we'd do this little study tonight and just think about the things that God was condemning the Ninevites for and to see if those things are in our own society. For if they are, then we are in deep trouble. We are in deep trouble indeed. And we need as God's people to pray with all of our hearts. But dear friend, you think of the awful judgment here that was upon the Ninevites. What if that judgment is about to descend upon us? There is judgment in itself at the moment. The, the, the very things that are entering into society, the things that were true here in Nineveh, are a judgment in and of themselves. But there comes a time when God steps in. We think of the iniquity of the Amorites that was uh, to last for 400 years before God stepped in. But there came a time when God stepped in. And what is true of nations is true of individuals as well. There comes a time when God says, My spirit shall not always strive with man. So what I want to do tonight just is in this chapter to look, and um, in the rest of the book, to look at the characteristics that were true of this civilization, the Assyrian civilization that was about to fall. And the first symptom and the first reason for the fall of Nineveh is given there in verse 1 of chapter 3, where God says to the people, Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. So the first thing that characterizes a nation, this uh, civilization that was about to fall, is its violence. Now we've said something about the violence of the Ninevites before, but he calls it the bloody city or the city of blood. And his words were an understatement in that day. There was no single city that ever matched the Assyrian Empire, the capital, for its cruelty. And as I say, I've already said some of the things, but let me just give you a quote from uh, one of the Assyrian kings, uh, Asarpal II. He wrote of his exploits, and he said, I fled as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpses. Some I spread out within the pile, some I erected on stakes upon a pile, on the pile. I fled many right through my land and draped their skins over the wall. So there you have the scale and the awfulness of the violence. And God says, woe to the bloody city. It is marked by violence. Now, can we say then 
that this kind of violence is a mark or a characteristic of Britain or the West in general. And on the surface, we'd have to be honest and say no to that question. Modern Western nations um, are very much opposed to violence. They're not going to boast of violence and torture the way that the Ninevites did. The culture of the West at the present time perceives, prefers to perceive itself as benevolent and reaching out the hand to others and all the rest of it. And where torture hits the headlines, it is usually as a scandal that is taking place. Uh, you think of the in Iraq, there were times when it looked as if soldiers had gone in and tortured some of the locals. And of course, that hit the headlines. Now, on the one hand, the torture had taken place. These uh, soldiers had gone in and they had been guilty of torture. But when it hit the headlines, it provoked uh, outrage. And uh, they said, we, well, that's not the way that we do things. And so on and so forth. And so we might say to ourselves, well, there is not really violence involved like that in Western nations until you look behind the surface or look below the surface. Because when you look at wars, you think of how many wars there have been that have been started over the last number of years. You think of the war in Iraq and Tony Blair told us that there were weapons of mass destruction and that they had to go in and to fight the war with Saddam Hussein. But when they went into Iraq, there were no weapons of mass destruction. You think of the war in Afghan, of Afghanistan and the uh, disaster that that turned out to be. And former President of the United States, Jimmy Carter, once said, and he said that the United States is undoubtedly the most warlike nation in the history of the world. And according to Tufts University, uh, between 1776 and 2019, the United States undertook nearly 400 military interventions. 34% uh, were in Latin America and the Caribbean, 23% in East Asia and the Pacific, 14% in the Middle East and North Africa, 13% in Europe, and we think of the current military intervention in the Middle East and North Africa. So there is violence. While we repudiate violence and while the governments would like us to think, well, we're against violence, the record doesn't seem to bear that up. What about personal violence? Well, you think of the statistics. The statistics in violent crime in a survey in England and Wales, it said that violent crime between 1995 and 2020 dropped from 4.5 million uh, reports in 1995 to 1.2 million in 2020. So that lean seems to be a decline in violence. But the thing is that that masks that there is a complete, there is a very dramatic rise in the most violent, where there's knife crime and guns. That is uh, growing from in March 19, uh, to the year uh, March 22, 2022. It increased 25% on the year before. 
that's uh, homicides, murders. There was a 10% increase in the number of uh, police record offences involving knives and sharp instruments. But also we need to remember that in 2022 that um, it was 35% knife crime was up from 2012 to 2013. So many, we can quote the statistics and maybe would say, well, violent crime is going down. But the most violent crime, the carrying of knives, in many places in England where young people go out, they feel that they have to carry a knife because they feel that they will be attacked and there is so much knife crime, particularly in London at the present time. So while our nation repudiates violence, and while it would seem that it stands against violence, there does seem to be uh, more and more wars. You have the war in Ukraine at the present time that they're pouring resources into, and there is the increase in homicides and in knife crime and in these kinds of things. So while we say that our nation wouldn't it wouldn't go out and boast about violence the way that the Assyrians did. At the same time, we have to say that there is violence very much in the heart of our society. What about the second thing then? What about social justice? I don't like using this term, so it's either justice or not, but anyway, that's the term that is used in this day. Well, look again at um, verse 1 of chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city. It is full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. So it speaks there of robbery. The word robbery there could be translated extortion. It is financial crime. They're extorting the people, robbing the people. Um, They are trying to get their money by uh, the means of um, uh, hoodwinking them and really telling lies to them. And then he says, the prey departeth not. And there you have the fact there of uh, they're treating people like prey. In other words, they're being exploited there. As it were, they're hunting them down to extort them. You think of the internet today and the growing extortion that is going on. You can hardly, um, you, you, you don't know whether to take some things uh, at face value, you, you'd be as well not taking things at face value. You get all, otherwise you'd believe uh, about the person from Nigeria that wants to give you uh, three million pounds or whatever it is. But you, you can't take things seriously. They, they, there are those that are out there today and they're hunting us down. They want to get hold of our details. They want to get hold of our bank accounts. They want to They want to do these things. But we're thinking about uh, what we're calling social justice here. These are people that are exploiting people, treating them unjustly, like prey. And again, if we say, how do we compare in our day and generation to that? Are we like that? Well, as I've just outlined, we are like that in many ways. But... On the outward, we wouldn't give a firm yes, because you know that out there in this day and generation, you think of how 
there is a profession. One of the big things is this social justice. They'll talk about equality and equity and about treating everybody fairly and um, letting everybody uh, live the way that they want to live and all of these things. So this uh, thought about social justice and treating, don't exploit the poor. Um, Let's pay reparations to the poor and those that have been exploited in the past. And that's the watchword of the campaigns of this day and generation. And you think of many large companies that have jumped on the bandwagon and they have uh, uh, put up signs for Pride Month and they fly the rainbow flag of the LGBTQ plus campaign and they want to support minority groups and all of this. Now, that's the profession. That's the outward. But does it work in the practice? That's the thing. Let me tell you a story that, um, about uh, some well-known firms, Disney, Starbucks, Universal Studios, Tesco's. And let me tell you about a little factory in uh, a little uh, factory on the Thai border, and it is known as Can uh, Canlai Ani. It is after the uh, owner who is named Canlai Ani Rudengret, and she named it after itself. It, 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 the, the factory is making garments. Uh, it's no more than a little room with no windows in it. Uh, the ceiling was low. The toilets were dirty, uh, one door at the front, another at the back. The only fresh air was, uh, was coming through the doors, no electric fans, no cooling uh, of the place. Uh, the the uh, temperatures inside were maybe 37 degrees Celsius. There were 26 garment workers there who had come across the border from Myanmar and they were making a minimum wage of 310 baht in their currency, or about £7.99, making garments and clothes for Disney, Starbucks, Universal, NBC, and Texco, uh, Tesco's. Um, the little place where they were was the Mesot region of Thailand. It was known as a kind of a, a black spot for regulation and people were getting away with all sorts of things. And the workers in the factory were from Myanmar. They'd come across the border in order to uh, get a little bit of money for their families to provide for them. But in the midst of all of this, suddenly Starbucks pulled out, pulled out of the deal and the workers there were getting this minimum wage. But Starbucks pulled out in the midst of all of this and left the workers with, with nothing. And that meant that they were getting no wages whatsoever. So they decided that they would uh, uh, go to the court. They made a complaint, first of all, to the Ministry of Labour, demanding compensation for underpaid wages, unpaid holidays, unpaid overtime and severance pay. And the case went to court, and the court found in their favor and that uh, they were to be paid uh, a total of 77,000 
£293 uh, from the owner. But the owner hadn't anything, so couldn't give it. So they, they were forced to go back to court, and the court sort of put pressure on them to accept less. Now, in the meantime, people got on to these companies. These companies were really paying the wages. These, Disney, uh, Starbucks, these companies that all of them profess they will back pride. Tesco's gave 100000 to pride. Disney is bringing out films that are disgraceful at the present time. And the uh, people thought, well, we can go to these American companies. They are worth billions. And surely 77,000 pounds will be nothing to these companies. Well, they had to bring it to court. They they had to get up a campaign. They used the um, little uh, Despicable Me uh, T-shirts in order to promote, because that was um, uh, NBC Universal, and they were going to use that as a promotion. And eventually, in 2020, the last of the companies uh, gave in and decided that they would pay the uh, workers. That was, um, the, it was NBC at the end, just before the Golden Globe Awards. But from 2019 to 2021, these poor workers had to survive in poverty. No work, no payments, no wage arrears. Their daily meal consisted of plants that they picked off the side of the road and some rice. They were trapped in Thailand because they hadn't the money to go back to their homes in Myanmar. And here were these global companies, and they had plenty of money, but really they were exploiting these workers. And you think of their profession. They, 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 these are the companies that lecturers and do films to promote the um, helping the poor. And help. But when it comes to making a profit, it's a different thing with these companies. Or to take another example, we think of the great fuss that there was uh, over in the wake of the murder of George Floyd by a U.S. police officer in 2020. And in the wake of that, you'll remember how the world was taken up by uh, demonstrations against racial injustice. And many companies again jumped on the bandwagon, and many corporate figures uh, went through the pantomime of saying, We support your cause. The CEO of the multinational biotechnology corporation AstraZeneca boldly declared, and I quote, the, uh, that urgent change is needed in society to tackle racism and to ensure equality of all, regardless of colour. Now, that's what they were saying. But then we came COVID, and Oxford University was doing research into COVID. And Oxford University said that when they found a vaccine for COVID, that they were going to share it with companies all over the world so that people all over the world we're going to get access to this new vaccine. And of course, in the event, you'll know that they were the first uh, to announce that they had discovered a vaccine for COVID. 
But AstraZeneca came in and they made a deal with Oxford that they would uh, take on and distribute this uh, COVID vaccine. And that scuppered the fact that people in Africa and the people in the poorest nations were going to get equal access to the vaccine. And in fact, the people in South Africa paid one and a half to two and a half times what the government here paid for the vaccine. The people in Nigeria paid two to three times what was paid for the vaccine here in Europe and in the West. So, okay, it's all right to make the profession. It's all right to say the words. It's all right to do the lectures. But when it comes to the actual putting of this into practice, it's a very different situation. So while there's a profession of justice and equality and equity, when it comes to the practice, it's a very different thing. Now, we need to move on here because our time's going. What about sexual immorality? If you look at Nahum chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, you'll notice a reference here. He says, Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcraft, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts, behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and will show thy na the nations thy nakedness, and the kingdoms thy um, shame. Now the reference to whoredoms there and harlots there is a reference to a religious uh, kind of a thing. You'll notice also in verse 5 he speaks about the, the nakedness of the, the people and showing the kingdoms thy shame. And, of course, the primary reference is to the fact that there was a religious turning away and a, a religious kind of um, harlotry that was taking place. But in the back of that, there is also a reference to the sexual sin. And we know that uh, the land of Assyria was well known for that kind of thing. We think of how... Um, J.D. Unwin did a study many years ago, and he measured the, the, um, what he called the nation's expansive energy, which he meant the ability of a nation to be competitive. And he measured liberal societies for this expansive energy. And he said this expansive energy has never been displayed by a society that inherited a modified monogamy or a form of polygamy. In other words, where the family breaks down, this expansive energy, this ability to be competitive and be productive, he says that breaks down. Now, you will see here that this nation, you, uh, we know that um, King Asherbel Kala had a form of, he put... Uh, Images of naked women all over the cities were carved into the walls. It was a, a form of pornography in those days. There were temple prostitutes, and all the rest of these things were very common in Assyria in those days. And we think of how when we sow the wind, we reap the whirlwind. 
We said that when Rome broke down, this kind of sexual immorality was rife. And down through the ages, people have traced and have seen that this kind of uh, immorality that comes in, the breakdown of the family structure that God has given, has been a disaster. And I don't have to tell you that that is the characteristic of our own land. Now, I can't go into it because my time is gone tonight, but you know about the breakdown of marriage. You know about the uh, acceptance of uh, homosexuality, uh, about these awful sins that are being foisted upon us and being put in our face, and we're being told that not only have we to um, uh, tolerate them, but we have to accept them today. And if you don't accept them, you're going to lose your, uh, you're going to lose your job and maybe your bank account and maybe both of them. Now, you can see that there is this in the downfall of a civilization. And we can see it in our own land at the present time. I'm going to move quickly through these, but the uh, fourth uh, characteristic is stupidity. Now, what I mean by that, well, look at verse 13 of the portion of Scripture. He says, Behold thy people in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. Now, here were people who underestimated the enemy. They thought that Nineveh could never be taken. They thought that they were secure. And because they had been a mighty nation and continued to be a mighty nation for many years, that uh, they were going to continue to be that and that nobody could uh, enter in. And they underestimated the enemy so much that they were setting the gates of the city wide open. Now, you look at our Western society today and you think of the way that our people are underestimating the threats that are against us, the threats of militant Islam, the threats of communist China. And there has been a marked decline in patriotism in the United Kingdom. It's become something of a dirty word. Around 2012, when the London Olympics were on, and when, uh, the, uh, when these uh, things were on, we, there was a brief time when Britain felt patriotic. But today, there were surveys have been done, and particularly amongst the younger age group, um, the over 60s, uh, there's about 49% who would be classified as patriotic. But in the younger age group, it's only about 19%. Now, say that that 19% when they get older uh, do become more patriotic, it's not going to reach 49%. So as time has gone on, you think of Jeremy Corbyn, the former leader of the Labour Party, leader of the opposition, and he uh, called Hamas and Hezbollah honoured friends. He fraternised with the IRA. He argued for the ab abolition of NATO. And the worldview that is encapsulated in the Stop War, Stop the War Coalition is their guiding mantra, mantra seems to be, it's our fault. It's our fault. Everything in the world is our fault. And there's a lionization of every movement that points a gun at the West, whether it, it has been 
Saddam Hussein, whether it has been Hamas or Hezbollah or whether it's been ISIS or whether it has been Colonel Gaddafi in the past, every, every one of those, there is a certain mindset that has taken every one of those on board. And you can see this anti-British, anti-West mindset that seems to be capturing the minds and the hearts of the people. But one more thing, and this is the last and maybe the most awful, serious characteristic, and that's opposition to God. Look at verse 4 of the portion of Scripture. Nineveh there is described as the mistress of witchcraft that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. And then if you look in verse 5, God says, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts. And you think of the characteristics of Assyria and Nineveh. Particularly it is seen, you remember when uh, the uh, Assyrian army came uh, down to Jerusalem to attack in the days of Hezekiah. And Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sent a man by the name of Rabshakeh uh, to uh, negotiate, as it were, or to lay siege to Jerusalem. And you remember how Rabshakeh came and mocked the God of Israel and said, your God's not going to save you. He didn't save, uh, no, he didn't save the other, la the other cities round about. And they trusted in their gods, and he put God on the same level as the heathen gods. And there was a mockery. There was a blasphemy against God. And we think of how in Britain today there is no religion that outstrips those who say they have no religion whatsoever. Two-thirds, 66% uh, percent of the people in Britain today attend no religious services. They don't, except for weddings and funerals, baptisms, that's about all if they go to those even. We think of how under half of the people it was measured have any confidence in churches or religious organizations. We have a land that is turned against God, turned against the maker, turned against the one uh, whose, whose precepts made Britain great. You think of the days of the Puritans. You think of the days of Whitfield and Wesley. You think of the days of Spurgeon. You think of the days of the Puritans. You think of these men who preached the gospel and presented the gospel of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was in the days when the gospel was preached, in the days of the Commonwealth, in the days of Queen Victoria, when Britain became great and there was a greatness about it. But today, there's a turning away from God and the things of God. And that always leads to disaster. The Bible says, be sure your sin will find you out. And that's the same, not only in the life of nations, but in your life. Dear friend, if you are going to stand against God, if you're going to rebel against the mighty God of heaven, you need to remember at the end of the day, there's no prosperity in it. The only thing that awaits you is destruction. The only thing that is going to be your portion at the end of the day is disaster. 
And dear friend, you can see the way that God brought all of these things to pass. We said in 612 BC, God brought all of this to pass. He said he would bring the city down. He said in the last verse, there is no healing of thy bruise. God fulfilled his word. I want to tell you, dear sinner friend, that God will fulfill his word for you as well. He says, he that believeth not shall be damned. That word will be fulfilled. And God has always fulfilled his word right down to the letter. And that's why you need to be saved. I'm glad today that there is healing for you. For the people of Assyria, there was no healing. There may be those of you out there for whom there is no healing. But you, you won't be concerned. You're not going to be concerned if there's no healing for you. You're not going to be concerned about it. But if you're concerned today, if, if this is something that speaks to you, then, dear friend, I'm glad that there's mercy with God. There's grace at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross and shed his precious blood that we might be saved. Our land is in a dire situation. And you think of the um, disruption, and you think of all as China sitting on the borders. China is growing in every way. It is taking on the wealth of uh, Africa. It's buying its way into Africa and all of the, uh, what we would call the third world countries. Uh, Africa, or, uh, China is buying it up. Now, we think of what will happen in our land. Things might not be just as good as they have been in days gone by. Where will you stand in that day? You know, it's our soul is the most valuable thing that we have. So you need to get right with God and turn to the mighty God of heaven. Our time is well gone tonight, but let's just bow in a wee word of prayer. Let's pray for our land that it'll wake up and that it might turn again from its sin to the mighty God of heaven. Our loving God, and our gracious Father in heaven, we think of Nineveh here and the warnings that it received. And Lord, as we think of these things, we can see many of the characteristics in our own land and in our day and generation. And our Father, we pray that thou wouldst have mercy upon us and that thou wouldst begin to cause men and women to recognize with all of their comfort and all that they rely on and all of the things that they depend upon that can be snatched away in a moment. And, O oh God, that thou wouldst have mercy and that thou wouldst turn us to thyself. We look to thee. We pray for thy blessing. Part us in thy fear and with thy blessing now. We'd ask that thou wouldst take us to our homes in safety. Watch over us and be with us. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and communion of the Holy Spirit be with us both now and in the incoming days, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.